You're listening to Just Ask Ing, a conversation about human sexuality and how to approach it with intelligence, understanding, and compassion. Hi, this is Stephen Ng, and you just tuned into another conversation I'm having on a series of sexual topics with my good friend Jackie. Hi, Jackie. Hi. What are we talking about today? Well, you know, I was thinking about some of the things you talked about in your um, TEDx talk, the magic sex number. Mm-hmm. And you were saying how we're all very concerned about what is normal, and we all try to normalize our own sexuality because we don't want to be different, abnormal. So my question to you is, what is normal? Oh, great question. And it's, it's a great question to answer in the light of sexuality as well. You know, I think sexuality is going to really actually illuminate this more for us than a lot of other topics, like talking about what is normal intellectually or socially or any other thing. But I want to give credit where credit's due. And it was therapist Marty Klein who came up with the term normalcy anxiety in regard to how badly we all want to be normal. And nothing is more calculated to create normalcy anxiety than the topic of sexuality because it's the topic we talk about the very least. So we have very little information about what normal is, and consequently, we have a great deal of anxiety about whether or not we are normal. And so, and that is, that's everything from soup to nuts. Pardon the expression, maybe I shouldn't have said that, but, <laughs> you know. I didn't even know that. <laughs> but, I, you know, when we're talking about sexuality, it's, it's everything from uh, the fantasies I have, the thoughts I have, the jokes I make or fail to make, um, what I enjoy, what are my turn-ons, and, and really the whole pattern of my life, you know, and the history that I go through in all of my relationships. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big topic to consider. And there was a time in America where only a very narrow band of sexual behaviors was considered normal. And thank God we all live in a time where things have loosened up considerably and now there's much more room to be a human being, not just for gay people who were horribly persecuted, but really for all of us. And and that to include all the sexual minorities out there, including the asexual and transsexuals. I think that for transgender people, um, life has got to be better today, as hard as it is, better today than it was, say, 40 years ago or even 20 years ago. I was talking to my child's um, principal today, and she was watching a movie. I I think it was set in the 1800s at about a a lunatic asylum and how they defined lunacy. Mm -hmm. And she said, everyone I know, including you, pointing at me, would be in that asylum. Well, and that's sort of true, isn't it, with sexuality? Because as, as Kinsey noted uh, in his research back in the 50s, you know, the one thing that we all have in common is that we are all different. So no two of us are exactly alike. And I, I think that that would apply even if uh, you were raised in the same town, you're exactly the same age, you went to the same schools and all the rest. We would all be so very different from one another if we could just have the language that we needed to describe who we are. And a lot of us, frankly, you know, when we're younger, we don't know who we are because we haven't lived enough life to have tried a few things. And so we don't know how to, in good faith, you know, do those um, 
uh, disclosures that would be very appropriate if before considering a long-term committed relationship. Then we have our long-term committed relationships, and sometimes they fail spectacularly because of sexual incompatibilities, which in hindsight, you know, really, and this is what I covered in my TED talk, or TEDx talk, is that we could have used our words. We, there, there are specific ways of talking about sexuality that don't necessarily involve having sex with each other for us to learn a lot about whether or not we might have a chance at compatibility or we're, or to learn that we clearly don't have a chance at any kind of compatibility. And that's where, because the word normal is such a loaded word, isn't it? So- yeah, I had somebody the other day uh, tell me that homosexuality was unnatural. And, and then I said, tell me why you think about that because I'm a counselor and right. so I can't say you're nuts you right. know? so tell me why you think that and he he explained well that if you want to have you know offspring having sex with the same sex partner is no way to get there and I said okay okay so we should only be having sex with someone with whom we can potentially have offspring now immediately the conversation gets uncomfortable right because these beliefs that are so that feel so comfortable and that and that feel so so assured and so certain fall apart very quickly once we start asking even the simplest of questions because that that definition would exclude all those people past the age of uh, childbearing the men, all, all the women past the age of menopause for example, that that two that a couple who've been married fifty years and they're in their seventies, they shouldn't be having sex because they have no chance of having offspring. Well, and people who who are infertile. So you're saying that anybody who is infertile can't be having sex. Well, Jackie, come on. If your womb is cursed by God, really, should any <laughs> right-thinking man be having sex with you? Of course. Yeah, it excludes just so many different examples. And, and, of course, doesn't allow for any other sort of sexual touch that might lead to, um, uh, to, enjoyment. to enjoyment and pleasure and connection, but that doesn't result in uh, a pregnancy. So that's his definition. Yeah, so which... unnatural. I said, would it bother you to know that, that there are very many species of mammals that actually have same-sex sexual relations would it bother you to think that, that, and you know what, I only asked him maybe two or three questions, and he said, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. And you know what he did, and good, and, I, and, and I, I think he had the integrity to say, yeah, that doesn't make any sense what I was saying. I can get rid of that. Wow. Yeah, it was just that easy. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it was, because, you know, for him, it really wasn't anchored in uh, his understanding of his faith, it was really more of a social construct that he had acquired from his family of origin. And so he found it very easy to give that up. Well, okay, yeah, I guess I was wrong. And so he moved on. But talking about what is natural, you know, it's... Or normal. What is normal? <laughs> yeah, well, what is normal? Um, that is such a very difficult question for all of us because what I like and what the next person likes could be so different that we each might be appalled at one another. And yet we could both be within that range on that beautiful bell-shaped curve. We are both within the range of normal human sexual uh, expression. 
So however it is that I express my sexuality, as long as I'm working within the confines of consent, uh, I think it's kind of an anything goes. So I'm not into cosplay, costume play, for those who don't know the term. But if my partner at the time were to suggest it playfully and I was put off and annoyed and and uh, and I thought there's no way I'm getting into one of those costumes. That's me saying no, right? I'm, I'm withholding consent. But what if she continues to uh, be seductive and the next month comes out wearing kitten ears in her hair? Well, that's kind of hot. And so I'm already getting systematically desensitized and within six months, she's got me uh, dressed up like a fox while she's dressed up like a little squirrel and we're just, you know, cavorting around happily. That kind of stuff can happen and, and it isn't always, you know, those, those cartoon-like characters, but that's sort of what happens in our lifetime. We, whether it's with one partner or over the lifespan with many partners, we become desensitized to things that we thought were not normal. Well, and all of a sudden they're very enjoyable. Well, and that's the thing is is one of the reasons, you know, we've talked about before that you want to be with somebody who's not the exact mirror replica of yourself. <laughs> because you've already got one you've of you. You've already got one of you. And if somebody, if you, if you start dating somebody who's very different from you and you get to learn from them, and I mean, and I always credit even like my ex-husband taught me so much about music and art that I would nev- have never known without him. And then I go date somebody else, and I could teach them about music and art. Right. And the same thing with sexuality. I, you know, you, I've, I've dated somebody who was very innocent, um, older, and had you know maybe two or three partners, and we had a really good time. Probably best sex of my life because he was <laughs> open to pretty much whatever. Well, you know, I I think for those of us who are adaptive, and I think all of our listeners are probably in that category or they wouldn't be listening to a podcast like this, even the worst of our experiences in the past, like the failed marriage that ended spectacularly uh, and and in disgrace, for example, even that can be something that teaches us something about human sexuality. But, you know, let's let's look at some of the things we frequently think are abnormal. Um, For a lot of people, it was affairs, that cheating on your spouse was abnormal. But surveys indicate that the majority of people actually have affairs. The majority of people certainly think about having affairs and are, and are aroused to the fantasy of having an affair with someone. Oh, and speaking of fantasies, the majority of men and women report being sexually aroused to fantasies of something as heinous as rape. Now, that doesn't mean anybody wants to be raped. But what it does mean is that when we fantasize, we get to color outside of the lines in a way that's safe. No puppies were damaged in the filming of this episode. We can go ahead and enjoy our thoughts. And the thoughts really aren't of necessarily of rape, period, end of story. It's more about for example, for a lot of people about being so desired that someone wants me so badly, they're willing to break whatever social boundaries are necessary in order to get to me. Okay, so I, I'm, not, I'm not... That's disturbing you, right? It is disturbing me. Um, it is disturbing me, and so I'm going to bring it back to something that... Okay. Let me put this in, Should we stop bit. and do a session? Or you... <laughs> 
Um, so I have a friend whose husband is in a field where he's constantly having sexual harassment training, and, and this Me Too movement has just really gotten him to a place. And these are people who have a very active, very um, consensual sexual sex life. But she said since this whole Me Too thing, his, is he keeps asking. He's, he's, he's do, they've been together for 15 years, and he's doing the, is it okay, can we? And she realized that she's having to um, come on to him for everything. Like he stopped coming right. to her. Right. And then she said to me, she goes, don't you ever just like want to be grabbed and pushed for example, up against a wall and just taken because they can't, they can't control themselves? And I was like, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, I, and that's a yeah. that's a bit rapey, isn't it? It's a little bit, yeah, yeah but and obviously in a safe environment. But it's a fantasy, and and fantasy is not reality, and that's the thing. You know, it's so weird when we try to help uh, sex offenders get well and go on to have productive, meaningful lives. We, my profession, that is, we often focus on trying to repress any sexual desires whatsoever, or try to repress any sexual desires that are what we think are wrong or taboo when there is an absolutely no correlation whatsoever between fantasy and behavior. So to just uh, finish up this portion of the conversation, because I have another thing I want to ask you about, um, in the confines of a, a consensual adult relationship, whatever is normal is what you two agree on. Yeah, really. And and why wouldn't it be? I mean, if you think about that, why would why wouldn't we <laughs> why wouldn't we let individual adults in this country where we celebrate personal freedom so much, why would we suddenly want to inject the role of government or religion into their private activities of their bedroom? That makes no sense at all and in fact it's it it's completely a slap in the face of everything sacred about human rights to think that somebody else is going to tell you what you can and cannot be doing in your bedroom. That that just is so wrong on the face of it for so many reasons. We could have another whole uh, discussion on that topic. But, but what is normal is pretty much whatever you like. And if you can find somebody who will consensually participate in that with you, great. And, and if you can't, there's Craigslist. <laughs> well, uh, there's also pornography, which is... Um, yeah, there is. The next thing, I, I read this article about teenagers and pornography. And obviously, you know, in, in my day, we had our, our Playgirl magazines and things like that. And obviously, these kids now have access to the Internet and everything that they could possibly think of, which is a little scary, Yes, because kids of all ages have access to what we used to call a porn shop or the XXX bookstore, only it's not just the local XXX bookstore, it's the universe's XXX bookstore with every conceivable idea, every conceivable video, photograph, toy, uh, conversation, uh, erotica, everything you could possibly name is in that toy store. And that's, yeah, our kids get to go there. By the way, where was that article that you were referring to? Um, was that from the New York Times? It was the New York Times, yeah. There's a great article in the New York Times magazine on teens and porn, which I would recommend to anybody. You can see, find it online and pretty it's easily. it's called um, Teenagers Are Learning From Online Porn. 
I'm looking at it online right now. It says American adolescents watch much more pornography than their parents know, and it's shaping their ideas about pleasure, power, and intimacy. Can they be taught to see it more critically? Yeah, and (laughs) yes, they can, and no, we're not doing that. Okay, what are we doing and, as and parents? It, well, you know, most of us, let's be honest, I, I've, I've had so many run-ins with parents where they said, my children know if they have any questions, they can come and ask us on anything. Well, no, they don't. And I've confronted them and I've explained to them, no, they don't. And they eventually, over time, come to admit, yeah, my kids would not be comfortable talking to me about that. Well, that means they can't talk to you about anything. So... Where do you get the off saying that they can? We don't know how to have these conversations. But the the good news is, and I, I you know, I, I can just sense all the parents out there who are just getting kind of that queasy feeling in their stomach, like, oh, my God, he's going to ask us to have that explicit of a conversation with our children. And I, I would say, no, that's really unnecessary. What would be necessary is to take the role of parenting back from the mobile devices your children are holding where a lot of them do look at their porn, by the way, if they have access to the internet, and they do, and they're browsing, they can look at porn at school, they can look at porn while they're waiting for you to pick them up, they can look at porn while they're waiting to go to Sunday school. Kids are looking at porn a lot. But what they're getting is a lot of information about parts, about anatomy, about what might go where, at least if you're airbrushed into perfection, what they're not getting is any information whatsoever on how to form a meaningful connection with another human being. And that is something that our society as a whole seems to be losing. And, and it's really not the kid's fault. It's not millennials' fault. It's, it's not the teen's fault. It's really just something we as a society have never really got around to teaching any of us how to do. And the end result is going to be a lot of kids who are very focused on titillation until I believe there's going to be a positive outcome of this out of this. And I think it would surprise you to, to think there could be a positive outcome. But there are certain laws within psychotherapy that we can count on here. And one of them is the systematic desensitization of any uh, object that's viewed over time repeatedly. So I keep looking at porn and what happens to porn eventually. It becomes like wallpaper. It becomes boring. Everybody's seen it. Everybody's seen enough of it. It's really not even interesting anymore. And actually, you know, when you stop and think about that, that could be really a good thing as opposed to the naive young boy who's been raised on a farm, who's never seen a, and a good-looking uh, woman his own age in his life, and then he sees one, and it's Yowza, you know, and he's ready to get married on the first date. We even saw that in that great movie, Captain Fantastic, which I'd recommend to all of our listeners, with uh, Viggo Mortensen. And the boy who's raised by his dad off in the woods, he meets the first girl ever of his life, and he wants to marry her. Well, getting to a point where we're a little more sophisticated and we understand that a great relationship, a great connection, isn't going to just be about some kind of porn uh, sequence, I think that's going to be a good thing for kids. I think kids, to be honest with you, are going to figure it out on their own. I just don't know if they're going to figure it out. I know a lot of them are not going to figure it out before they end up catching a sex crime and going to prison. 
So the quote in this article, um, there's nowhere else to learn about sex and porn stars know what they're doing. Right. And and of course, the pastor of your local church does as well, but he's not free to talk about it or show you his videos. <laughs> because there are, see, we, we do know a little bit. People know a little bit, but we don't talk about the sex angle because we've already stigmatized it. And it's dirty and it's gross and it's wrong and you're too young and you shouldn't even be thinking these thoughts. But even if you were with adults, adults with adults don't have these conversations, not even in, in classes uh, that are in the adult community, whether it's religious or not. It's difficult for us to talk about. But, you know, the great thing about sex, <laughs> one of the many great things about sex is that it's really simple. It's really not that complicated it's it's mostly as um, Norman Mailer wrote, uh, friction in a well lubricated canal, <laughs> and he was talking about men with men and men with women, and it really is that's sort of the easy part of it. It's also not hard to fall in love. We are attracted to people all the time. We fall in love easily. Let's admit it. If you're a loving person, that means you fall in love easily. So you can, because that means you can see what is lovable about any given human being. And that's kind of what makes you fall in love. So the thing we don't bring along in this package of love and titillation is the ability to conduct an intelligent, intentional interview that would let me know if the two of us are even remotely close to having any possibility of having a great relationship. And that's what's missing. And my hope is that as kids start, because there's no end to this. There, there is no dam, like a Hoover dam one can erect between the children of our society and internet porn. Uh, that train already left the station, to mix my metaphors. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's too late for anything like that. What we can do, though, is, is count on human nature. Human beings crave love. They crave meaningful connection. Yes, there are people, and, and we've mentioned him from time to time, like Harvey Weinstein, who got lost in a sea of titillation and he settled for that, and that's all he ever got in, in all of his life, I think. But that by itself is a very lonely thing because any woman will be eventually become like wallpaper for any man in the absence of a truly meaningful connection. In the presence of a truly meaningful connection, in the presence of true intimacy, one man and one woman could go on and have an amazing intimate life that was full of great sex right up until the bitter end when death separated them. But without that, uh, I don't see it happening. So I'm not, I'm not as, I'm not as uh, pessimistic as a lot of people are about teens and porn. Well, I'm wondering. Um, at I, when I read this to you, it said, "Can they be taught to see it more critically?" Um, you said, "No, we're not going to do that." So, so <laughs> what are we going to do? I mean, I, I know that you encourage healthy conversations about relationships ongoing with our with our children. Do, do we talk about? excuse the phrase, elephant in the room, <laughs> at all? Or do we just pretend like we don't know what they're doing? I think parents would be well served to begin talking about something that would be more comfortable, and that would be about sexuality, not sex, not intercourse. And by sexuality, of course, I mean the whole enchilada, you know, the starting with 
uh, initiating social contact, finding someone attractive, introducing yourself. How would how do you find uh, whether or not there's a mutual interest? How do you obtain consent for a date? All of those kinds of things. If kids could be equipped to engage in the real deal in three-dimensional real life, I think in pretty much any internet porn is eventually going to become somewhat blasé in comparison. If kids could have genuine intimacy, I don't think we need to worry too much about porn. Um, and, and, you know, I grew up looking at porn because Playboy magazine started off right around the same time I was born. And there was plenty of Playboy-type magazine covers to go around. And my peers saw plenty of that. The only, But that alone would not have hurt us because, frankly, there are children in more primitive societies who see adult nudity all the time, right, in, in, in the Amazon River Basin and that sort of thing. But it doesn't pervert them and it doesn't make them weird. Uh, what really makes us weird is that we really don't know how to get our needs for love met. So I shouldn't freak out on the porn. I don't think we need but, to. But I might want to freak out on how little conversations we're having. Yeah, I think I think having conversations about love, and you can have critical conversations about dopey romantic movies that really aren't true to life. You can have conversations about movies that depict authentic connections between people. And you can have conversations. I think just about every mom and dad in America feels comfortable talking about the beginnings of their own relationship with their children's other parent. And and that's a very natural and wonderful way to start talking about intimacy and what worked and what didn't work and what's had to change over time and what we've learned from that. That's so much more comfortable than trying to talk to my kids about masturbation or any of these other sexual activities that, you know, are eventually going to be universal in pretty much the lives of all of our children. Though for any of our listeners who are concerned, we're going to be talking about masturbation on a future podcast. So why you don't have to talk about it with your kids? Of course we are. Why would you talk about it with your kids when you could talk about it with us? (laughs) Exactly. Okay. So while we're on the topic, general topic of what is normal, um, I was reading this article the other day about this thing called, oh, where did it go? The Feramore app. Feramore, P-H-E-R-A-M-O-R. Oh, don't tell me. Let me guess. It's uh, an app that tells you what your pheromones are and what else. Exactly. So it's a it's a cross between Tinder and 23andMe. <laughs> so um, you sign up and you spit, you send in your saliva. And then they match you up with people in your area who have, what, complimentary saliva? Um, <laughs> yeah, actually, complimentary would be a good, a good term, I suppose, because theoretically, the, for any two people in a room, those, those with the greatest amount of divergence in their immune system experience the most attraction. Uh, my listeners may consider me a hopeless Luddite in, in my views on this kind of thing, but I really like to see real relationships with real people happen in real time and real space. And I think the idea that we're going to outsource our, our uh, intuition, outsource our insight into relationships and, and quantify it into an app based on some spit. I mean, it is an intriguing use of spit as a, 
as a metaphor for as sexual lubrication, to, right? <laughs> as opposed to how we normally use spit. Right. And, and, yeah, as opposed to the normal use. So when we think about this, though, I imagine uh, that you had 50% of the population using 23andMe for this app, which we don't have anywhere near that that percentage. It would mean that you're missing out on the other 50% of the population who may be every bit as qualified in terms of pheromones, and and you're going to be overlooking them, even though they might be right underneath your nose, because you're so damn focused on that mobile device in front of your face that you can't see the people around you. You know, it's... our, our species has been at this for over a million years, this business of partnering up and mating. We've developed some pretty great onboard apps that we were born with, and they work really great if we will just download them and use them in our consciousness. And we can do that, but we're going to have to work at it a little more intentionally than, than we have. Twenty, the, You know, the app from 23andMe or one that's related to 23andMe and cross-spliced with Tinder and all of that. It sounds like kind of fun technology, and I don't want to be a killjoy and say that we shouldn't have some fun. It would be, I I think it'd be fun to see how many successful marriages, though, don't match up. I I actually think, and I'm going to put on my tinfoil hat for this. It sounds kind of terrifying. So the aliens can't get into your brain and the the thoughts will stop you. The dating mining that you're giving to this company. Data mining or dating mining? Data mining. <laughs> so you're telling them about your all your likes and dislikes like you would with an app. Right. And they have your DNA. Yeah, what could possibly what go could wrong? What could possibly go wrong with that? Right. I, I, I just think it's a little spooky and a little reminiscent of that film, if anybody recalls Gattaca, uh, where people would quantify each other or qualify each other, excuse me, by uh, taking this, samples of their DNA to see if they were my sort of person, the kind of quality person I'm looking for. Well, you know, you miss a lot of great people that way because whatever standards we have, we're not aware of what information may be just around the corner that's that's nakedly visible to our eye and and audible to our ears. One of the things, I used to teach classes up at the university, and um, one of the things I noticed, and it's, and it's the same university I attended, so, but a long, long time ago, um, <laughs> and I realized that all the kids, well, most of the kids were walking around campus looking at their phones. I was up on campus uh, a couple weeks ago, and I noticed the same thing. Everybody was walking, staring at their phones. So the whole thing where when I was in school, you know, I'm in the journalism school, and I might meet some boy from the engineering department because we're walking across campus, and your eyes meet, and you smile, and you talk, and you go get a cup of coffee. Um, now it seems like that's not going to happen unless you literally bump into them because you're both looking at your phones. Yeah, as if life wasn't hard enough already with our limited social skills and intimacy skills that now we get to be even one more step removed, whether it's Tinder and Grinder or some other sort of uh, dating app like uh, Fish in the Sea or eHarmony. You know, none of these algorithms are anywhere near as effective as a truly informed, intentional person who is interested in building a life together with another person in a partnership that makes sense. And, and we've talked about before, and if you're, you're just listening for the first time, you can check out our podcast on the intentional interview. So if you, you meet somebody who you're attracted to, and then you find out whether or not they're a good match rather than vice versa. 
Well, yeah, or, or our spit matches up, so <laughs> what? <laughs> why wouldn't I be with him? You know, that makes no To me, that just sounds so ludicrous, and I, I, I can't get into it. But, you know, life finds a way, like Jurassic Park said, and, and, and life finds a way under all kinds of circumstances. People fall in love in prison, you know? So I think even this app is going to have its success stories. It's just that... If a, if a smart person is really interested in playing the odds, I think they might want to put their phone away and just look around. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you for another very interesting conversation. Oh, you're welcome, Jackie. My pleasure. I love talking about this stuff because I want everybody to enjoy the same kind of love and affection and great sex that I'm enjoying with my beloved. So thank you, and we will talk to you next time. All right. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Just Asking. If you have questions for Stephen, please tweet us at Stephen Ng MFT.